This podcast is brought to you by Intel vPro. You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look podcast with Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at The Washington Post. Well, there was supposed to be a second meeting today on the debt ceiling between President Biden and congressional leaders, but late yesterday afternoon, it was postponed with 21 days until June 1st. The day Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says the United States will default on its debts. Here to bring us up to speed on where things stand is Tolu Olorunipa, Pulitzer Prize winning White House Bureau Chief for the Washington Post. Tolu, welcome back to First Look. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. So <laughs> we'll get to your big Pulitzer win uh, a little bit later. Let's start with the debt ceiling. Why was that meeting set for today postponed? And is it a good sign or a bad sign? Well, Jonathan, it depends on who you talk to. Right now, all the people involved are saying a lot of the right things, including House Speaker Kevin McCarthy saying that this delay does not mean that the talks have broken down or that uh, there's not forward progress on trying to get to a solution. They're just saying that the aides that were meeting since the meeting that happened at the White House uh, are looking to make more progress. They have made some progress, but they want to make a little bit more progress before the the the, the, the folks who are going to be in charge, the, the House Speaker, the Minority Leader, uh, as well as the leaders in the Senate and the president get together again. And so uh, th a lot of the people are saying the right things. But if you listen to some of the folks who are uh, speaking off the record or on background, they are saying that there hasn't been much progress made since the, the leaders met uh, at the White House. And so that's one of the reasons there's that people saw no reason to have the leaders meet again on Friday because they wouldn't have much to talk about. And the meeting from uh, earlier in the week was the first time that a lot of these leaders were able to get together. But what we heard was that a lot of people just reiterated the talking points they've been talking about for the past several weeks in which Republicans say that they do not want to raise the debt limit without spending cuts. The White House and Democrats say that they do not want to negotiate over the debt ceiling because these are bills that have already been incurred and they don't want to set the wrong precedent of allowing spending cuts to be tied to uh, raising the nation's borrowing limit. And so now that everyone has been able to lay their cards on the table, uh, the, the folks who are aides and the folks who are working underneath the leaders are going to have to uh, work out some kind of deal. And we haven't made much progress on that front yet. And that's one of the reasons that today's meeting was postponed. And we'll wait to see whether or not uh, they reschedule for next week. Wow, you you an answered all of my, almost all of my questions, follow-up questions that I was going to ask. But I have two. The, the, it's a good sign that the staff the staffs are still talking. They met yesterday. What I'm wondering is, are they having budget talks or are they having debt ceiling talks? This is another answer where I can say it depends on who you're talking to. Um, <laughs> uh, two sides of this debate are speaking different languages. Republicans are saying that these negotiations are about uh, the debt issue that the country faces and trying to rein that in through spending cuts, through trying to ensure that America doesn't continue to add to its national debt. Democrats are saying that this is a two-track process, that they are happy to negotiate over spending, but that is not uh, in any association with the debt ceiling itself. They say that that needs to be lifted in a clean bill and that any negotiations over spending would happen separately as part of the appropriations process. And so the agreement that we may see is one that allows both sides to claim victory and say that they're 
version of events is accurate, uh, where there's some ambiguity over whether or not the debt ceiling is being tied to the uh, the spending levels that are going to be negotiated. Uh, but we haven't quite been able to figure out how to get both sides to feel like they are going to come out of this with a win and come out of this with the, the talking points that, to say that they uh, negotiated successfully. And that's why we're in this stalemate for now. Uh, and so it does seem like this is going to come down to an issue of messaging for now. And then um, later in the year, we'll have to deal more seriously with the issue of spending cuts or what the budget is going to look like. Um, but Republicans want to get as many concessions as they can now, now that they have the leverage of the debt ceiling hanging, hanging over the Democrats and hanging over the president. I, I asked that question because the president released his budget proposal on March 9th and, and the House Republican majority has yet to do so. So uh, one more question on this before we have to talk about Title 42. How seriously is the president considering going around Congress and invoking the 14th Amendment to prevent a default? Interestingly, he has not taken that off the table. In interviews, when he's been asked from uh, reporters that are talking to him on the uh, South Lawn of the White House or when he's traveling, he has not taken that off the table. He said that he's not there yet. He said that uh, you know it's the Republicans' responsibility in Congress to pass the debt limit, uh, pass the raising of the debt limit. And so right now, the White House is not um, you know publicly talking about that. But uh, be rest assured that that is something that is under consideration. They're looking at any executive options they might have because they have laid out all of the detrimental aspects of what would happen if we were to uh, run into the debt ceiling and if America would stop paying its bills. As soon as June 1st, they've talked about millions of jobs being lost, people's 401ks being decimated, uh, the country not being able to spend money on key issues that uh, people rely on. And so they have talked about how detrimental this would be to the economy, even as the economy is in a somewhat shaky uh, position right now. And so you know, rest assured that they are looking at every option. They're going to considering whether or not they have a way to do this without Congress, given how uh, strong Republicans have been about the idea of not raising the debt ceiling in a clean bill. And so if they can't work out these negotiations, uh, the president may try to see what the lawyers will approve in terms of executive authority. But that is definitely not their first option. They don't want to go into these untested grounds where they could get caught up in the courts and have this uh, still become a financial calamity. And so they're hoping that they can avert having to use executive authority, but they're also looking at the options that may be on the table. Um, on Title 42, a minute before midnight, uh, that Trump-era public health order that allows uh, migrants to be quickly expelled from the country expired. We've seen the, the highest level of uh, illegal border crossings ever, more than 10,000 in the last few days. Um, is the administration prepared for the crisis at the border with the end of Title 42? Well, they say they've prepared as much as possible, but it's clear looking at the images, looking at what we're hearing from local leaders in those border communities, that the administration is not prepared to keep things uh, normal and organized as you would expect uh, at the border. Instead, they are prepared for chaos. The president himself said that this is going to be chaotic for a little while. So they're bracing themselves for a chaotic scene in which we are going to continue to see record numbers of migrants coming across the border. 
And the system is just not equipped to take care of that level of, of migration. And so they are saying they're working their heart, as hard as they can and they're doing the best under trying circumstances. They have had some adverse court rulings against them and they're trying to navigate the judicial system and also you know, blaming Republicans for not allowing immigration reform to happen. But this is a, a source of angst in the administration. They don't have an easy solution. They don't have the preparation that they need in order to uh, account for all of these migrants and make sure that people are uh, being handled in an orderly fashion. And so it does appear that this is going to be a, a headache for this administration for not only this week, but potentially for months to come as we see the pent up demand of people who had been waiting to cross until Title 42 was lifted now starting to come across in, in these record numbers. And there's just not the capacity to prepare for them. And so it does appear that this is going to be a big challenge for the administration, uh, a challenge for which there are no easy solutions and uh, a challenge for which it's a, a big political challenge as well for the president who's trying to navigate this issue while taking a lot of incoming from Republicans. All right, Tulu, we have to end this segment on a celebratory note. On Monday, you and fellow Post reporter and co-author Robert Samuels won a Pulitzer Prize for your book, His Name is George Floyd. It's over your left shoulder in the camera shot. In the, oh, in the camera, <laughs> where <are> the camera? <laughs> there it is, there it is. His name is George Floyd. Congratulations, were you surprised? You know, this whole journey has been a surprise. Uh, we had no idea when we embarked on this journey of wanting to tell George Floyd's story that it would lead to the kinds of impact uh, that we've seen. Um, and so we've been super gratified. Uh, getting a Pulitzer is the height of the you know, journalistic ex ex uh, expertise. And so we're super excited about it. We were surprised that um, you know, we were even in the mix for this kind of award, but it, I do think it speaks to the power of George Floyd's story the power of, of his friends and family to be able to uh, tell that story to us and allow us to help uh, the, the, the country and the world see him for who he was, uh, you know, full human being, complex, nuanced, someone who wanted to change the world and, and sort of ended up doing it in this tragic way. And so we wanted to tell his story, not only as a story of a man, but a story of a country. And we wanted to tell the story of the country that he grew up in. And so uh, we're really gratified by this award. It really is a testament to the idea that people are engaging with this book, engaging with George Floyd's story as an American story, as a story that affects everyone and a story that we should all uh, pay attention to because it's uh, a part of our country as well. Um, I will also add, um, because you were too, too humble and modest to say it, it's also the power of your writing and your reporting that also helped you earn that Pulitzer Prize. Pulitzer Prize winning White House Bureau Chief for the Washington Post, Tulu Olerunifat, thank you very much for coming back to First Look. Congratulations again and have a great weekend. Thank you so much. I'm going to keep the conversation going with our Opinions Roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post Associate Editor Ruth Marcus and Washington Post columnist Ramesh Punuru. Ruth and Ramesh, welcome back to First Look. Thanks. Hi. All right, let's start with debt ceiling. Uh, we're right now 20 days, Ruth, from when Treasury Secretary says the United States will default on its debts. How concerned are you that congressional leaders and the White House won't come to an agreement that raises the debt ceiling in time? Uh, very, 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 and just add a, several more iterations of that concern. We, we've been to this precipice before, but we multiple times, we should never get there. Um, the debt ceiling is, as you have 
powerfully written, Jonathan. It's a stupid, unnecessary, um, dangerous device. Uh, we should pay the bills that we have racked up. Um, but we've never been to this precipice before with a Congress as potentially reckless as this one. I believe strongly, um, and I suspect Ramesh agrees with me, that uh, Speaker McCarthy very much understands the dangers that he's confronting here, wants to find a solution to lift the debt ceiling, but he has got a caucus that does not understand the fire that they're playing with. And so I am deeply concerned. Uh, one more question for you, Ruth, before I turn to Ramesh. You're the only lawyer, I don't know if you're a lawyer, Ramesh, but I know that Ruth is. And Ruth, um, uh, Larry Tribe, a uh, constitutional law professor and scholar, wrote a column saying that the, that the president should invoke the 14th Amendment if he needs to, and he lays out the rationale why. Do you think the president has the legal standing, the legal, well, the, the constitutional authority to invoke the 14th Amendment? Because there's a lot of debate about whether he can or can't. Um, well, first of all, my friend Ramesh, I don't think is a lawyer, but really knows a lot about law and courts. So let's not discount him. And I'm curious what he thinks about this. I am very, very leery of using the 14th Amendment authority. Um, Professor Tribe, who I know and knows a lot more about the Constitution than I do, previously had a different view of the 14th Amendment authority. The 14th Amendment says that the validity of the public debt shall not be questioned. I think when you have a standoff between the president and Congress, when a president ignores um, the clear dictates of Congress, um, that's a dangerous road to go down, whether or not you technically have the constitutional authority. We have dealt with a president who ignored um, limits on his presidential power um, in the form of Donald Trump. We saw him questioning the importance of the debt limit and uh, at the CNN town hall, which we'll talk about. I am very leery of doing anything that um, enhances presidential power to ignore laws, because once you start going down that road, it can be uh, a dangerous place to go with future presidents who are going to use the authority uh, or risk of using the authority in less appropriate ways. Okay, Ramesh, I want, I want your thoughts on this. I want to pick up on something that Ruth just said, expressing her concern about a, a president ignoring the dictates of Congress. And I'm just wondering, isn't it ignoring the di dictates of Congress if the United States doesn't pay its bills, bills that were racked up due to actions and dictates by Congress in terms of you know, budgets and laws that were passed? So, I mean, I, I take it that that is Professor Tribe's basic argument that right. Congress has already passed these laws. And if Congress is passing sort of multiple laws that conflict with one another, um, then, the, you know, the, the president has to make some choices and, and do the least harm. The thing that strikes me about this, and, and I, I have to say, I'll take, a, 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 I'll take a Ruth's a kind comment. Uh, but also say that I've I've certainly not been an expert on this particular clause of the Constitution uh, or studied it very much. But I do wonder about practically whether it even achieves what it's supposed to achieve. Does it really calm the markets 
if the president invokes this uh, at least highly contested theory um, and issues debt whose status is going to be up for grabs in court, um, you know, what kind of premium do, do those bonds have to be sold at? I just, I, I think that this is not actually a solution to the problem that it's purporting to solve. Um, um, you know, President Biden, as I mentioned to, to Lou, presented his 2024 budget uh, back on March 9th. And Speaker McCarthy has yet to present his budget. And I'm wondering, how can McCarthy hold the economy hostage when he hasn't even presented a formal budget, let alone spelled out which programs need to be cut as part of his plan's call to cap spending at not only FY 2022 levels, but cap spending at 1% annual growth? Uh, Ruth or Ramesh, which one of you want to take that? Oh, it's a question about Republicans' failure on the budget. So I'm just going to toss that to Ramesh. <laughs> well, right. So the budget statute, of course, requires, you know, the, the president to submit a budget. The president submits a budget every year, and it's almost always just kind of dead on arrival, uh, especially when you've got uh, a Congress that is partly held by the other party. Um, I think that the critique of the Republicans two weeks ago um, was stronger on this ground before they had passed legislation that raised the debt ceiling um, and, you know, uh, laid out their budget goals through the House. Um, right now, that's the only thing that's passed a chamber, right? The Senate Democrats obviously haven't uh, tried uh, and and wouldn't be able to pass a debt ceiling increase of the kind they want. Uh, and I think that that you know, I think that the balance of forces on this issue has changed because of that. And frankly, I'll have to say, I did not expect that McCarthy was going to be able to get his ducks in a row, keep the Republicans together. Um, and I think there's also a hopeful sign because it, it raises the probability, although it certainly doesn't make it uh, certainty, that we could reach a deal that he might be able to deliver enough House Republicans to pass. Hmm. Let's switch gears to Title 42, Ruth, um, which expired just over nine hours ago. How prepared is the United States for the imminent expanded crisis at the border? I think the answer is probably as prepared as it can be. Um, this is a, a, a reckoning that is many, many years in the making. Um, Title 42 to the extent it was legitimate and necessary and useful, has long outlived its legitimacy. It was instituted um, during the pandemic. It um, served the function of not necessarily making us uh, healthier as a public health emergency, but simply keeping people out. Um, it has long needed to go away. And it was clear that there is this pent up demand. There will be this pent up demand that is not the fault, as I see it, of the Biden administration. It comes from uh, imperatives uh, in Central America and elsewhere. People are desperate, absolutely desperate, willing to take uh, the dangers and uncertainty of coming, trying to come to the United States to request asylum. And fundamentally, it's a reflection. Once again, we've been talking about Congress's role in the debt ceiling. 
of Congress's failure to deal with what everybody, Republican presidents and Democratic presidents in the past has understood to be the necessity of passing comprehensive immigration reform. The mess that we're watching right now is the legacy, inevitable legacy of those two phenomena. And you know, Ramesh, to, to Ruth's point, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas put the blame on Congress this week, saying they left, quote, a broken, outdated immigration system in place for over two decades. Doesn't he have a point? I think he does have a point. Uh, and I think there's lots of changes that um, we ought to make to our immigration system. It, it strikes me as a little bit like our tax code in that it would be nice if the system looked like somebody had designed it on purpose. Um, but with that said, it does seem to me, well, first of all, let me say, I think Ruth is absolutely right that Title 42 long since outlived any legal justification it had and has been just been, been used as a stopgap. Um, but it seems to me that before COVID uh, and after the disastrous and horrific family separation policy, the Trump administration, you know, had actually reached a a reasonable kind of immigration policy on the border, um, which was working even before COVID, and I think was somewhat recklessly dismantled the Remain in Mexico policy in particular, um, without having a uh, a good solution or alternative in place. And so I, I wouldn't let the Biden administration off the hook on this. Uh, I think that they share responsibility, even as uh, you know, congressional dysfunction has certainly played a role here. All right, let's turn our attention to the thriller in Manchester from earlier this week, um, <clears throat> the CNN town hall with former President Donald Trump on Wednesday. Um, early on, he stated how he viewed the events of January 6th, 2021. Let's listen. January 6th, it was the largest crowd I've ever spoken to. That was prior to the walk down to the Capitol building. I don't think, and I've spoken to hundreds of thousands of people. I've never spoken to a crowd as large as this. And that was because they thought the election was rigged. And they were there proud. They were there with love in their heart. That was an unbelievable and it was a beautiful day. Ruth, your reaction to this and the other lies and conspiracy theories uh, Trump spouted that night? Um, here we go again. I thought it was a horrifying, sickening, almost every word that came out of his mouth was untrue or offensive or both. Um, and it was, though, I have issues with the crowd and the audience and the way CNN handled that. I thought it was a powerful and useful and chilling reminder that Trump is Trump. Trump will never change. If he is the nominee, if, God forbid, he is the next president, this is what we are going to get. He never backs down, never accepts reality. And we just saw that in moment after moment as Caitlin Collins valiantly tried to fact check him in real time. That's almost impossible. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Ramesh, to Ruth's point, one of the more troubling aspects of that town hall was the audience reaction, including laughter at sexual abuse and insults hurled at E. Jean Carroll and Caitlin Collins is what we saw on display today's Republican Party. Well, I think it is certainly a, a segment 
of the Republican Party, the people who would uh, who who I guess wanted to come to see a town hall with President Trump tend to be President Trump's fans, former President Trump, we should say. Um, uh, actually, I should just say it's one of the more grating habits that really noted that I noticed, uh, especially during the town hall, uh, is that we call former officials by their name as though they were still the current official, which led to Caitlin Collins continuing to call him Mr. President, which he isn't. Um, but anyway, a, a, an aside on that point, um, I think that uh, it was a demonstration of Trump's real strengths the lack of any connection to reality or any felt need to be connected to reality, the lack of any shame, it's a kind of superpower. We've seen that again and again. And it is a warning, I think, to the other uh, potential Republican candidates also of what they will have to deal with if they're up on a stage with them. Oh, yeah, I think Governor DeSantis is going to melt like a popsicle in Phoenix in the middle of the afternoon. Ruth, journalistically, um, CNN's getting a lot of criticism for just even providing this platform to Donald Trump. Do you think that it was a wise move from a journalistic point of view? I, I think that as journalists, we get onto really dangerous territory when we talk about not allowing people who for better or worse, whereas Donald Trump would say, fortunately or unfortunately, um, are the leading candidates for their party's nomination when we silence them, when we don't give them um, an appropriate platform. But emphasis here on the word appropriate. I think that whenever you have an audience, that makes the um, difficulty of controlling somebody who's already uncontrollable, like Donald Trump, that much more difficult when you have an audience that was clearly skewed in this way. Uh, I saw Governor Sununu on TV this morning talking about how he knew everybody in that that, that audience and that they were all Trump supporters. Um, when you have an audience that's skewed in that way and you know they're going to kind of do the call and response and chortle along with Trump at um, issues of sexual abuse and assault and other things, um, that just adds fuel to the fire. I would have Trump on to expose his craziness and dishonesty for what it is, but I would not have done it probably with an audience, and I certainly would have not have done it with that audience. Uh, Ramesh, we've got a, yeah, go ahead. Sure, sorry. Puck reported the day after the town hall that the crowd had been instructed that they could applaud but not boo. I can understand that instruction, but I do think it also created an asymmetry. And, re and real quickly, Ramesh, because we have less than a minute left, President Biden, after the town hall, tweeted, quote, it's simple, folks. Do you want four more years of that? Should the Biden campaign be happy about Trump's town hall? Oh, I think it was a good night for Trump in the primary and a good night for Biden in the general. Uh, the Biden administration, you know, the Biden campaign got a lot of footage, not that it would lack for much uh, from from him. And uh, and Trump's elevation, I think, does help them. Uh, I, I don't think I think Trump can win in 2024. Absolutely. But I think that he is a risky candidate for the Republicans. And that is the, the key thing there that folks need to remember, uh, you know, he could he could win again. Ruth Marcus, Ramesh Panuru, we we got to go. Actually, we're over time. But thank you both very much for coming back to First Look. Have a good weekend.
You too. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with First Look, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.